All right. Thanks, Gillum. That was Gillum Lard, everybody. He's front row. Shout out Gillum next to Keith. Dynamic duo that I never thought would be here, but here we are. So <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Good to see the live streamers, like Brian said. My name is Noah Lowerton. I've been an apprentice here for two or three years-ish, just kind of thrown into some roles when COVID hit. I, I think that the church just saw that we had some needs that had to be filled and said, where's just a body that could fill it? And they're like, there's that guy's hanging around, so we'll, we'll throw him in somewhere. Yeah, Brett and Jesse aren't here, so Neil and I were joking earlier about we should just do something entirely different today. Just move the entire pulpit away and just not use it. Just see what happens. Um, but obviously we ended up not doing that because that requires work. And we don't want to do that, right? Anyways, we are in this series called Imperishable, right? We are in First Peter. That's the goal. Jesse started this out last week really well, I think, kind of situating where this, this letter sits in the New Testament. So we talked about the author, Peter, right? A very well-known figure. We got to the end of our series in John, and we saw a point where Jesus is reinstating Peter to ministry, so Peter is really well-known. He's his right-hand man. He's kind of this uh, speak-first, reap-the-consequences-later type of guy that I think a lot of us can relate to. He writes this letter to what he calls the, the elect exiles, those who are sent out geographically. They, they aren't where they maybe once were. Maybe they've been, been dispersed from their original home. Maybe they're they're scattered for persecution. But either way, they are all over kind of Asia Minor in this area, and they're not at home, right? They're dispersed. He called them resident aliens, and it's the same word that Jesse used last week to describe us, right? So he situates this book as Peter writing an encouragement to them because they're, they're scattered. They're confused. And the word that I was chewing on and, and thinking about that, that kept coming to my mind is disorientation, right? That they, that they had this this way that this streamline, they know we're supposed to be over there, we're supposed to, there's this path we're supposed to be walking on, but now we're just not there anymore, right? I think about it, have you ever just taken a really, really good nap, you know exactly where you're at, and then you wake up, and you're like, I have no, what, what year is it? What, what's happening? What day, who am I? Who is this person? Or even when I was a kid, you kind of know, you fall asleep on the couch, and then you wake up, and you're in your bed, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, how'd that happen? <laughs> You know, while your dad's sitting there just like sore because he's done it for two weeks in a row. And, but there's this kind of like jarring moment of saying, I'm not home. I'm not where I thought I was. I'm a little bit confused. I'm, I'm disoriented. I have this streamlined way of thinking and way of living. That's, I'm, I'm getting jarred out of that. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and I'm lost. That's the word that I want us to think about because when I think of disorientation, I think that we can relate to that in the same way that this early church related to it. So as we're going through, we're in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. So as we look in that text, I, we're going to go back and forth using the language of, of Peter wrote to them, but also Peter writes to us, because I think this is precisely the, the type of audience that we also are. People who feel a little bit lost, like maybe, maybe we're not where we're originally from, right? I know some people here moved from Imagine moving from like the beach to here, and you're like, whoa, mountains, that's crazy, right? Everything's not, where's the sand? It's not here, that's the answer. We, we don't have any. All right, it's, it's, it's not, as, geographically it's different, but even like there's some cultural differences between the, your 
favorite place to go eat, your places you like to go spend time together. Um, they're just not the same, right? There's not a, uh, <laughs> what, what is the, the, dog, the dog house? That's the spot. There's not a dog house everywhere. You'd be shocked, <laughs> right? Radford Coffee Company is successful, but it's really just right here, you know? So there's this disorienting nature to, to being just thrown into a new place. The people around you are new. And I think we experience that a lot as also scattered exiles, resident aliens, like, like Jesse described us as. So I want us to be able to relate to them in that way. So I'll, I'll use language that goes back and forth a little bit. But the point of Peter writing this letter is important for us too, because what he's doing is he's going to be trying to reorient a disoriented people. Right, so they're trying to get calibrated, figure out how do we live in this world as followers of Jesus. And Peter's here to remind them, essentially, like, hey, like over here, like, you got to keep your focus here. He's trying to bring them back to the center, to their true north, and say, yeah, you're exiled, but your home is with God. And I can explain to you and show you and remind you exactly what that's like. And so he does that primarily, as we're going to see, through praises. This first section that we see, Peter's laying the groundwork. He's going to give three specific praises. One, for God initiating salvation for people. The second is that God guards and keeps his promises in his people. So he guards their salvation. And then the third is that he will complete their salvation all the way through. So those are the three praises that Peter's going to give throughout this just first section before he gets into this sort of boots on the ground. What do you do when X situation happens? He's not really worried about that right now. He's laying the framework moving forward. So that's what we're going to do too. We're going to follow God initiates salvation, God guards our salvation, and then God com- completes our salvation. He guards us through it. So I'm going to read this section for us, and then we'll get going. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So the first praise Peter gives, he gives God initiates salvation. And I think what we want to know is why in the world would God initiate salvation? All right. It's rooted first, first and foremost in his character. Peter starts us off and says, in view of his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. That's the first phrase. In view of his great mercy, right? That this is a character description of who God is. If you look all through the scriptures, you see you know, Exodus 34, or one of my favorite places to see it is the story of Jonah, where, you know, 
brief recap on the story of Jonah, that there's this prophet, he's, God says, hey, you need to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which is a place that has been horrible to Jonah's people, right? He does not want to go there. This is not a great place for him. And so he goes out and he tries to avoid it the best he can. Long story short, whale, fish, swallows him up, spits him up on land, and right there at Nineveh, and God says, all right, you're going to go. He gives just the worst sermon you have ever heard. Like, he kind of begrudgingly is like, well, if you turn from your sins, I guess you'll, or 40 days, or you'll be destroyed. Which is like, I just imagine him like, like kicking the ground, just being upset that he's even there. And so he gives this horrible sermon, and almost the whole city comes to know God in a deep way. And he is so mad about it. He is so upset. And as we're reading it, we're like, that's dumb. That's ridiculous. Why are you upset? This is dumb. And so he, his, his words are, I knew you would do this. I knew that you were a God merciful and overflowing in compassion. It's dumb, right? We, know, we understand that. And so he's upset about it, and then, you know, the end of the story, he goes and mopes under a tree and wishes he died, and something about cows at the end. It just gets weird at the end of the story. But he's upset, right? Jonah, the mistake that Jonah makes is he says, these people aren't worthy. Have you seen who they are? And he's completely forgetting that he, he's just as unworthy. That God has extended mercy to the least likely people in Jonah's story, including Jonah. But he forgot. He's forgotten what that's like. It's rooted in God's mercy. That story tells us this is how God has always been, showing mercy to those who are the least expectant of it. So it's his character. So that's why he initiates salvation, because he has compassion and mercy on people that he has created as the pinnacle of his creation. Then the second thing is how. How does he initiate our salvation? Well, the second part of that passage says that because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So then born again is that language that we want to use. And so we just finished John, and you might remember, I don't remember who preached it, but we were in John 3 not too long ago. And, and it reminds me of this story of Jesus and Nicodemus where he's going in and they're having a conversation and Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom again, this kingdom of God, you have to be born again. That's it. That's all that's, all that's got to happen for you to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, this Pharisee, is like, born again? I don't know if you understand biology, but so what happens is that it only happens once and you can't do that again. That's just how it works. And Jesus is like, yeah, I get it. I created that. I know how it works. And essentially tells him, what I'm getting at is that there's this renewal, this creating of a new person, this regenerating of your soul that has to happen in order for you to see the kingdom. That it's, it's necessary. And this is something I don't want us to miss as readers. I don't want us to miss this aspect of being born again. So Jesus is saying something spiritual, the, the Holy Spirit is, as a work of God has to happen in order for you to be made anew. In order to be made anew, you have to be somewhere beforehand. And in the scriptures, this is this idea of that, that we have been alive and living in a, in a specific kingdom. Colossians calls the kingdom of darkness has been where we live. And that only by the renewing and washing of the Holy Spirit and, and this rebirth that we talk about can we then be transferred over to this kingdom of light. He has made us entirely new people. It's the first part of this praise that Peter gives we are wholly new people. We're just not the same categorically different people than we were before. And that's good news. But he doesn't just stop there. 
yeah, we've, we've been transferred and made entirely new, meaning that old version of us, that old person that we were, just does not exist anymore. But there's even more good news. When he says born again, we're talking about adoption. We're born again, not just into the same family that we were, continuing in the same life that we had, but we're born again into this whole new identity in a new family. So Jesus, Jesus is giving this idea of, yeah, you, you've been born again, and now you're, you're co-heirs. You have a new family. You have a new life. This is encouraging for people who are scattered, remember? These are people who are all over the map, who are probably feeling isolated, lonely, by themselves, in despair. They're saying, I, I, don't, I don't recognize my neighbors. I don't recognize anybody around me. Their dialect is a little different. They, all of, geographically, I, I don't know what to do. And so Peter reminds them, that you're not alone because you're in a new family and with a family comes its members, right? Looking to our left and our right, we here can see that we're not alone. This is the same encouragement that Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is writing to us. That's the praise of being born again means that you're not alone. You're not, you haven't been abandoned. When you're born again, you, some of us know this feeling of, of fatherlessness, of homelessness, of, of feeling like nobody's on my side, nobody's with me in this. And Peter here is saying, no, for, like this is, what we, this is what we're here to praise about. You feel like you're alone, but no, you've got a father. And whatever this, this peak image of, of the father idea that you have in your mind, he is so much more than that loving in such a perfect way. And you've got a family that though scattered, it's there. We can take that comfort here knowing that to your left and your right, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, but also down the street worshiping maybe right now, or maybe in Christiansburg, or Blacksburg, or Roanoke, Richmond, Asia, Europe. Like, we go all over the place, and the family is scattered, but we're, we're united. We haven't been abandoned. We haven't been left alone. And that's an encouragement that he gives. And then he still doesn't stop there, right? We have this idea of adoption into a family and then in that family, we receive what he calls a living hope, which I think is huge for us to see. Living hope, different than just kind of these, these standard hopes. I think he's, he's setting it apart from the tendency of, of these people, surely, but also us. Because don't, like we can be honest with each other, that don't we latch on and hope onto things that aren't living, that aren't lasting, things that are just going to let us down or, or disappoint, right? Cars fade, right? They rust, food spoils, people change, things happen in your life, and, and sometimes we hope and we cling to all really good things. Don't get me wrong. We want promotions. We want money. We want to provide. We want to be able to, to thrive in this world, and so we cling to things that, again, are good, but they were never meant to bear our souls, they were never meant to hold the weight of everything that, that we feel and everything that we experience. They just can't do it. They were created to be second-tier things. They were, you know, they, they were never able to do it. They were never created for that. And so we, but we latch on to those because they're easy and they fly by us, and we just kind of grab them and say, yeah, that'll work for now. So what he's saying is, this is the third part of the praise, is that we've been adopted into a family that loves us by a father who loves us deeply. And then he also gives us hope. 
hope for something coming, coming down the road. There's something out there that we can long for and look forward to, both for them and for us, rooted in the person of Jesus that's strong, that's sturdy, right? Because it's a reminder for us that our hope will always be as strong as whatever its subject is, right? If our, if our hope is rooted in something that will not hold the weight of our souls, then it's going to fail. But if our hope is rooted in the only one who can bear, bear our weight and our grief and our pain and our joys and our triumphs, then it'll hold. We've been given an actual living hope. This is a reality that, yeah, that Peter is ecstatic about. Like, this is what he's rejoicing in, is that we feel alone, you're scattered and exiled, but you have a home, you have a family, you have a father, and you have actual, real, tangible, living, vibrant hope that we get to have with one another, that we can look forward to. It's a real praise that Peter wants to give. The second praise that he gives for us is that God guards our salvation. So two things that are, that are guarded here. The first thing is, again, we got to root this in God's character. It says that he, he guards an inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, that is imperishable, unfading, and unspoilable. Right? It is, it's untouchable in all ways. And so I think, can, can we think of anything, and again, we're going to be honest with each other for a second, can you actually think of anything outside of cockroaches and Twinkies that last forever? Anything. Like, there's anything in this world that we interact with, it, it doesn't work, right? There, everything that we see and touch and experience will fade or decay in some way. As little as we want to talk about it, we also age and decay in some, in some ways. I know some people are like, I'm immortal. And I'm like, well, you're not. That's just, <laughs> I don't know who's actually saying that, but when I was writing this, that popped in my mind. So here you go, right? So everything that we experience in this life is, is fading in some capacity. And I'll give it, like, there's some beauty to that. There's this, there's this nice reality to the fact that, that things come and they go, and for a little bit we can experience their beauty. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But again, the, everything that we experience, including people, change. They are subject to change. And again, there's, there's this kind of human beauty to it, but... We were made, as Ecclesiastes says, with eternity set in our hearts. That there's something that we want that, that has to last, right? There's got to be something more that's like at least a league better than what we experience. And that's where we find rooted in the character of God is that he is never changing. He is consistent. So the first thing that he guards is this inheritance for us. He promises an inheritance that will never perish. It won't spoil. It won't fade. Ever. And he has always said this. He has consistently, from the beginning of the story, I think what, what Romans tells us is that he's held out his hand to an obstinate people. That all throughout the story, there's these cycles that we see, especially they're really clear in the Old Testament, where we see people walking with God, and they're enjoying their time. Things are wonderful. And then out of nowhere, you'll see them just say, okay, I think I'm going to go do whatever I want. And I'm just going to go over here, and I'm going to build this thing that looks like me and acts like me and talks like me and will allow me to live whatever life that I choose. And they go away, and so God allows them to go, and they build this thing, whatever it may be, and it's slowly killing them every single time. And this is like thousands of years of this happening. Of they're building these idols and these gods that aren't working, and it's killing them, 
and then they're, they're drowning in their, own, in their own sin and their own pain and suffering that they have brought on themselves, and they're suffering. And they say, oh, God, please help us. Like, where, where were you this whole time? And he's like, well, I was right here. And then he picks them up, dusts them off, says, all right, now let's walk again. And so then they start walking again, and the cycle continues. That's all that we see that all through the Old Testament, this cycle of, of us seeking and then, and then smacking away the hand that feeds us. And I say us because this is a theme that is not just in the Old Testament, but it's also in our life where we see this, this offer. And then whether we know it or not, we have smacked away the hand that feeds and said, no, I think I can, I think I can provide this for myself. I think I know what I'm doing. And yet, astonishingly to me, this, this blows my mind. I don't know about you guys, but it blows my mind that in this whole time, in this whole experience, God's hand is still out. The promise is still there the entire time, countless times, over and 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 over. Just going to keep going until somebody just gets upset with it. Jack, you got it. You got it, man. He's like, okay, stop doing this. This is enough. I get the point over and over, right? So it's, it's repeated constantly because that's, that's the faithfulness of God. One of my favorite books of the Bible, Romans, makes it clear that our faithfulness does not determine God's faithfulness, that while we are unfaithful, He is never-endingly faithful. That's the, so we can trust by His character that He's keeping a promise for us, right? In the meantime, there's something else that needs to be guarded, and that's us. I, I think we can all admit, we've, the experiences in our life, we need to be guarded. We need help. We need to be protected. The things that we experience on a small scale up to the large scale, whether it's the day-to-day beatdowns of just the pressures of life, the pressures to provide for a family, the pressure to be a certain way, to carry yourself in a manner that, that you know, you're not too loud, but you're not too quiet. You know, okay, you follow Jesus, so you've got to be nice to me all the time, and the one time that you yell, I'm going to say, ha-ha, gotcha. Right? There's... There's those sort of pressures, but then there's also even more social and cultural pressures that, again, disorient us. We need to be guarded because there's, there's a world out there that we experience that pulls us off of this path where we want to be oriented on our way to a relationship with God and in His family. We're being tugged either direction by the things, again, that a lot of times are good, but they want to be primary, and they can't be because they were never made to be that. So as we walk through the world, oftentimes what happens is we are disoriented and pulled off either way by saying, no, this, this is really what will satisfy. No, this is really what will make you a real man or a real woman. Here's the expectation that we have for you. Here's the ways that you can, here's how you should talk. Here's how you shouldn't talk. Here, and so we're pulled either way by these, these sort of cultural pressures that say, all right, bend the knee here, bend the knee over here. You need to pledge your allegiance here. Pledge your allegiance here. And if you don't do either of these, then you are the worst. Right? There, there's these pressures to, to fit in either direction, no matter where you go. The, the point is that we will experience all sorts of things in this world that will disorient us from those sort of cultural pressures to real heartache, real tragedy, real loss. I think for our community alone, we know what that's like especially recently in, in my mind. 
we know what real tragedy feels like. We know what loss feels like. And when that heartache comes, it's going to be really easy to just say, all right, I'm, I'm going to sit over here. And I know that True North's over here, but I just can't do this. I just can't. We even know what near loss feels like, right? We, we've talked a ton with Brett about just how jarred his world has been. Right? There's this disorienting nature to, to suffering that we experience that it's really hard to see true north. Everything's really muddy right now. I can't, I can't figure out where my way is, and I need help to be calibrated, to be shown what's true and what's good. And so that's what, that's what Peter's encouraging these people in, is that we have an inheritance, yeah, that's guarded, because it's built into the character of God. We have a, a promise that his hand is always stretched out, that he's got something for us we can hope in, but also he's going to guard us. He's going to keep us and hold us. The same God that fashioned the world out of nothing is the same God that holds us closely. He says, it's all right. I've got you. You're here. And like that, that's comforting. There's not, there's not anything else in this world that can reorient us and, and guard us and comfort us in the same way as the God who made us and knows us and deeply loves us. So that's the second praise that Peter gives, is that God keeps our promise and inheritance, and that he keeps us. He promises to hold us closely. The third praise that he gives is that God completes our salvation, or that God will complete our salvation. So how does he do this? Again, how does he go about completing our salvation? Well, the end of this section here, I'm going to read 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God carry, he completes our salvation by carrying us through the hardship, through the pain, through the trial. And the, the previous two praises that Peter's given kind of make up this third one, that God initiates our salvation. We have a real family and a real hope and a real salvation ready for us. And that God promises to keep his word and to keep us, to hold us firmly. And the way that he completes it is by holding us firmly through our pain, through our struggle. And in some way, it's like Genesis 50 says, that what was planned for evil, what you had planned for evil, God has planned it for good. The final comfort comes in the form that God can use any circumstance, any disorienting or jarring event that may shatter our universe or rock our world, that God can use that in a way to build something in us, to build what he calls a faith that is, that is genuine, that is tested, that is good and profitable, right? And this, I don't think this is just kind of a, a blind faith in any way. I don't think they're saying, all right, close your eyes and then trust that God's there. I think the reason that, that Peter says here that it is genuine and profitable is because this is a faith that's not afraid to put your stuff before God and say, all right, here it all is. I don't know what I'm doing, but here you go. This, this is all that I have. Take it or leave it. He's going to take it. Spoiler, right? It's building in us a faith that says, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. Please help me. In which we know, he'll say, okay, of course I'll help you. I love you. 
right? It's building in us a genuine faith that moves us from this sort of, okay, so I've gone to church, check, figured that out, cool. I prayed last week, check, right? I, I'm doing these things. I volunteered one time, check, right? Like I, I helped move a fridge one time, move a couch, move somebody in, do something for somebody. I'm a good person, check. This is, a, this is a genuine faith that has moved beyond that, that God is working through all of these things to move us from there to a genuine, real faith that asks the hard questions, that says, here, here it is, God, can you handle it? And he can. It's a, it's a faith that is tested and sure and true because it rests on the one who is sure and true. Unlike the imperishable and and fading things that we experience in this world, we're able to know that our faith is sure because, because God is sure. That's what Peter's praising him all throughout this letter. And then in the end, he promises to complete us in the end when everything's revealed in Christ. That's what we need to know is the outcome of our faith. right? He, he promises us that he's going to initiate salvation, that he's going to keep us and hold us, and he's going to complete it all the way through until we get what we've finally been waiting for, our hope and our salvation are all rooted in the person of Jesus. That every good, beautiful, and wonderful thing in the world can, can point back to him. And there's going to be one day where we get to go be embraced by the one who made us, the one whose arms we can finally rest in. He's saying, I promise you people this is coming because God said it will. There's a real completing here. He promises that God will take everything that he said and he's going he's gonna to hold you through. When this scattering in this world makes you feel as if your, your faith is fading, when it's really, really hard to believe because I think somebody said it this morning, somebody looks at you like you got three heads, where people are going to look at you and say, oh, this is, oh, these are just those strange Christians again. These are, they call themselves followers of Jesus. Why would they follow this guy? He's lived 2,000 years ago, right? There's, there's a strangeness to the way that we live because the claims that we make are strange, right? That God became man. This is part of, part of the wonderful praise that Peter is giving here is that he's making a claim that no other religious system in the world would even dare to claim. That the one that created everything, the Almighty that rules and decides how life should be, actually became just like us. No other system would claim that became like us, and then he suffered and died. I don't know about all that. But that's the claim. That's the reality. Peter roots all of this in the work of Jesus that is for sure already happened. Historical fact. This did happen, and I promise you, because we know that this happened, he's going to carry you all the way through if you just trust in him, if you just love him. And so I think that's where Peter ends. Peter ends this whole thing with his main point being, Right, right towards the end, before, remember, before he gets into the nitty-gritty of this letter, he gives us one more point that if we don't have this one thing, then we have nothing. If we don't have this one thing, then none of this matters. None of what I said today matters. If this one thing isn't there, love Jesus. It's revolutionary. It's crazy. This is what, what Peter pins the whole passage on. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Everything that, 
that he says and does and that we say and do is rooted in, do you love Jesus? Because this, this checkbox Christianity will not work. None, walking out the Christian life is not only difficult, it's entirely impossible if we're not operating out of an overflow and a love for Jesus in the things that he's done and just the person that, that he was. Right? So that's the question that I pose to you as we end today is, do you love Jesus? Despite where the world wants to pull you either direction, do you love Jesus? When you're, you're pushed side to side, shifting left and right with opinions and, and perceptions and, and these pressures from the world to be and act and live a certain manner, do you love Jesus despite these pressures, despite your heartache that is real? Do you love Jesus despite these circumstances? Do you delight in him? Is he at the center of your heart? Do you love the things that he loved and hate the things that he hated? Do you long to see him more? To have your entire soul put on this, this God who promises to hold you, right? Do you love Jesus? There's no application outside of that. I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Do we love Jesus? Church, allow, allow out of an overflow of his love, allow his love to transform you, rest in it, be comforted in it. Only out of that can we operate in abundance and walk humbly with our God. I'll pray for us, and then we'll worship. Father God, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for this church, for the opportunity to come and, and preach here. God, we rejoice in the good news that you are who you say you are, that you have promised to hold us and comfort us, that you have initiated our salvation. God, that from start to finish, this is all a gift that you've given your people so that they could know you more. God, would we overflow in our love to you as a response to your overwhelming love for us? Because this is love, not that we first loved, but that you first loved us. That the only reason we know what love is is because you've explained it to us and expressed it to us and you caricature it yourself. You are love incarnate. Yeah, would we go today loving you more and thinking, how can I love him more? Yeah, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.